Hello and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by W. Curtis Preston, Chief Technical Evangelist at Druva, and we'll be talking about data backup and disaster recovery. Curtis, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to dig into data backups and recovery. I think it's one of those topics people kind of you know, take for granted until they, of course, have some kind of emergency or maybe they have developed some past scar tissue from a recovery situation <laughs> or something like that. But I like that. Uh, I've never heard that term scar tissue, but I like that. Yeah. I yeah. Like that. Uh, I have some, you know, I have some of my own war stories, but, you know, before we kind of dive into that, can we start by having you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And how did you end up where you are today? Uh, well, let's see. W. Curtis Preston, right? You know, you already gave my name and my title. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, the webmaster of BackupCentral.com. I've written four books for O'Reilly uh, that were all uh, in and around backup. And actually, this month, which is January, that's when we're recording this in 2023, I uh, have been in the industry for 30 years, if you can believe that. Uh, started out as the backup guy at a uh, what at that time was the largest, uh, second largest credit card company in the U.S., which was MBNA back then, got acquired by Bank of America many years ago. And, and, and still to this day, when I think about the fact that I, a person who knew nothing about Unix and computers and backups and backup tape, I was handed the keys to the backup kingdom of a $35 billion company and said, here, do it, right? Um, that's how I got my start. And then I spent actually a few years trying to get out of backup, right? Um, like mm -hmm. a lot of people did. I wanted to go into sysadmin business, right? And through a series of things that were not planned, uh, the first, say, three or four years, several years, uh, I was trying to do other things, trying to go. I went into consulting. I wanted to be a sysadmin. But backup, just I just kept literally tripping over backup stuff in the wild. And I couldn't help myself. And then next thing I know, I started writing articles. And, uh, and then I wrote my first book, and it was published in 99. Uh, we were, at the time, you may, uh, you know, may have heard of the Y2K you know, <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, and so we were all, all very focused on that at the time. And then uh, since then, I've done you know, a variety of things. And for five years now, I've been this chief technical evangelist at Druva, which is a, a fun job where I get to use, take my my technical expertise and and help explain that world to you know to others. Yeah, so it sounds like it wasn't you know a by design career choice. It was something that you know that was the job that you get at the time, and then through this uh, gravitational pull to backups, you just kept finding yourself back there, and now you've essentially spent majority of your career in it and developed, you know, deep expertise essentially in the world of backups and disaster recovery. Yeah, I, 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 I initially didn't, did certainly did, I planned to do anything else, right? Just like, <laughs> just like a lot of people, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 you know, at some point I realized I had developed an expertise, accidentally developed an expertise in an area that most people run away from. And then once I got the publishing bug, I, I had written that first article in Sysadmin Magazine, which is no longer around, but I wrote that first article and getting emails from around the world of having people you know, thank me for uh, you know, opening their eyes and explaining things. That, you know, that changed things for me, right? And then that's yeah. when I got the idea to write the book. And then once you've written a book on something, well, then, you know, that's pretty much going to be what you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why I, you know, I keep holding off on doing that. But no, I, I think, you know, there's lots of stuff even in my own career, I, you know, I, I think I never planned to do. I think people, if you've been around long enough in the tech industry, you know, I think a lot of times you end up potentially doing something out of necessity. And then that ends up being like a defining characteristic of your career. For me, that, that was marketing. Right. My training as an engineer, uh, and that's really where I started my career. But I was also a startup founder, and then I had to basically learn business and marketing, and, and that's kind of how I fell into that. But anyway, back to, back to backups. You're kind of starting to dig into this topic a little bit deeper. What are 
like the common sort of mistakes that organizations make when it comes to data backup and recovery. Obviously, you've seen a big spectrum of technical changes that have happened throughout your career when it comes to like dealing with this issue. And I'm sure maybe the problems that existed 20 years ago are different than the ones they are today. But maybe we can you know start with essentially today. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The problems from even 10 years ago really um, are non-existent in the typical backup environment. Back then, what we, we were fighting tape, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, and there was a fundamental misunderstanding of how tape worked. And that, that, was the, that was what everybody did wrong. If you asked me 10, 20 years ago, it would have been that answer. Um, today, I would say that, uh, like if I had to pick one thing right now, it's not putting enough cybersecurity focus on backup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, and, and that's true, uh, across the board, regardless of which way you're doing backup there, there's sort of, I'm going to say like three broad categories. There's, uh, you know, I'm going to buy a box and put windows on it and I'm going to buy some backup software from pick your favorite backup software product. And I'm going to install that and configure it, basically build your own, um, system. And then the, the the second category would be appliances, right? Purpose-built backup appliances, PBBAs, we call them. Um, and you, you can buy a, a, a box that does it for you. And then the third would be um, a, a service like the company that I work for, Druva, a SaaS service, right? Which is, I think it's the, the, the way people are doing it or in their future. But across all three of those, the... When you look back, one thing that's been consistent and you know hasn't changed since I started backup, and I'm guessing it was that way before, is that nobody wants to do the backups. That that's how I got my job, and um, you know, uh, and I, and I tried to get out of it myself. But because of that, you have a lot of very junior people running the backup system, and they often are also not very. Uh, savvy when it comes to ways of cybersecurity. And when you couple that with the absolute fact that the ransomware groups of today are directly targeting backup systems uh, to either A, take them out of the equation from, you know, they want to do a traditional ransomware attack and the backup system is standing in their way. Or the new thing, which is uh, data exfiltration, via the backup system. So if they're able to somehow um, gain control of the backup system or crack its uh, um, encryption algorithm, they can they can use the backup system as a giant source of a ton of really incredible, you know, incredibly important data. And so I think that um, companies should be focusing on that. like. If they did nothing else, they should do that. So mm-hmm. that would be my number one. So, given this like history, essentially, where you know backups is kind of given to the junior person, but now we've moved from you know what was maybe like an on-prem world, on-prem backups, where maybe the consequences of an issue with the backups is less impactful to an organization than something like a on cloud where there's like a cybersecurity attack and someone goes and deletes all the backups and does a ransomware attack or or maybe breaks down the encryption and gets access to all this sensitive data. Do you think that this like ownership as a junior person is just like a legacy issue? Like, you know, in the old days, people people just kind of forgot about it. We'll give it to, you know, the new person on the team. And then they've continued essentially that behavior, but now the problem's much more complicated and difficult to, to manage. So I'm going to I'm going to have to sort of uh, correct a few misconceptions that it sounds like you have about the way the way backups are still done. Uh, Most first off, most data center backups are still being done in the data center, meaning there's if you have a data center, most backups are still being done by a box, uh, you know, an appliance or a box that you've installed software on. Right. Um, And so. That that's sort of number one, um, and number two, there there was something you said about that. It sounded like you thought that that the cloud sort of has increased the risk. Uh, I would say it's the opposite. 
that it, it's it's that it's that box in the data center who's nobody who nobody is paying any attention to, and it's not updating its uh, patches as they should be, um, and is not applying basic security concepts like MFA, least privilege, uh, password management, et cetera, that, that, that when you look at the cloud, um, uh, so there's two ways to look at the cloud. One is the wild, wild west, right? So I, I go and I use AWS, Azure, et cetera. Who knows what people are doing there, right? <laughs> the cloud is it's just uh, tools, right? The other are uh, providers that are actually designed to do something like backup for you. Uh, Druva is one of those. Uh, and those, they're basically making sure that all those best practices are being followed. But when it's just a box in a data center, um, that's definitely not the case. Yeah, I guess the what I was trying to understand was that you said in the current state that um, mm -hmm. you know, cybersecurity essentially is the thing that organizations Agreed. need to, to pay attention to. So yeah. why is it then that that is a bigger issue now with the way we're doing backups in the cloud world if things have gotten better because of, of these things that you're mentioning where patches are applied, it's no longer just a, a box in the, in the corner of the room that people have forgotten about? Because most people haven't moved to the cloud for backups. Right. Um, they if they have moved to the cloud for their cloud. So if they've if they've moved into AWS, Azure, GCP, they're doing cloud backups of that. Generally, there are there is there are some of those who are even, you know, earlier I said there's a lot more on prem backup appliances than than it sounds like you might think. Not only are there are there still a ton of those uh, and it's still the predominant way. <clears throat> there are even people that are using cloud providers and continuing to use an on-prem backup appliance to back up the cloud, right? They're literally pulling that cloud data down into that on-prem appliance. I don't understand that at all. Um, even, even after I apply my my obvious bias that I work for a cloud backup company, like I, I don't like you, you're in the cloud, you're getting the, the advantages of the cloud. Why would you want to bring that back in time into the data center, I don't understand. But most people that are running in the cloud, they are using some type of cloud backup system, but most people that are running in the data center are still using a data center-based backup system. They may copy some of that data to the cloud, <clears throat> but it's being done and managed and run by that. And that this thing of, the junior person, that is still absolutely the case, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's just nobody nobody wants to raise their hand and say, I'll take charge of the backup system because they know it's it's historically problematic. Um, you know, it's a job, it's kind of a thankless job, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're either visible or you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, if you're doing your job uh, well, so, yeah. no, no, there's no issues. But if you're yeah. not doing your job well, then it's like escalated to the sea level essentially. Exactly, exactly. So, and so the thing is that the reason why I see it, this problem has always been the case, the cybersecurity as, as, aspect, mm -hmm. but the, the threat actors weren't directly going after the backup system until the last couple of years. It literally mm -hmm. started in the last year or two. Um, and and it, it was a direct result of you know, when we look at like 2014, when the when the ransomware first started, and then as it continued to develop, people that actually had a decent backup and DR system were able to tell the ransomware um, groups to go pound sand. And so then they said, okay, well, we're gonna start targeting the backup system, see if we could basically shoot them in the head so that um, they can't be used as a defense against our normal ransomware attack. And then the next escalation is they said, uh, you know, this is like literally the, you know, the, uh, the crown jewels. You've got all of the company's data backed up to one place and we're going to directly target that. Um, and uh, this include, by the way, this includes modern systems like Druva. So we've had customers have their backups attacked via our backup system. Now, the, the only way that, that 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 could, you know, today is to gain, to 
gain administrative control. So you use, um, and we've had customers who have had that where the, the, the threat actors gained administrative control over their Druva backup system. And even uh, they had gained, I can think of one where they, they had MFA, but the hackers had gained control of the email system that they used for MFA. By the way, don't use email as your MFA. But anyway, so they, they had done that. And so what they were doing was they were going in Druva and deleting backups, right? So we have a feature to, to, to essentially uh, block that or undo it depending on what the customer wants to do, right? We, we can enable that so that the customer, if they, um, if they, they can specify at backup creation, when a backup is created and it's supposed to, let's say, have 90-day expiration, um, they can make a setting that says that's not ever allowed to be changed. So once a backup is made, it's in there for 90 days, right? We've had to, all of the backup vendors have had to adapt to this world. And I don't think many of the customers have made that same adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's also the sage advice about not using email as your 2FA. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier also this, you know, with the attacks, essentially, if someone gets the backup and they're able to crack the encryption on it, then suddenly mm -hmm. they have access to all this data. So what are like some of the best practices that organizations need to follow, especially when it comes to like backing up personal user data, you know, things like account data, other sensitive data, that stuff's regulated. You can find your, you know, if you're holding on to that data forever, right. big deletion right. challenge, you know, how do you go and actually, you know, delete a user record from all the backups as well as the, you know, the active databases and so on. Yeah. So the, um, the, there's, a, there's a bunch in there, right? So uh, the first thing that I think that people should do with their backup system, uh, regardless of which type of backup system we're talking about, is that the usernames and passwords should not be in something like um, um, Active Directory, okay? Don't put your usernames and passwords for something that, it, it's your last line of defense. It should not be just another username and password in Active Directory. I think it should be, and by the way, I have this opinion about all administrator passwords. I don't think they should be in Active Directory. And I'm familiar with LAPS. Um, uh, you know, call me old school. Well, I'm old school, but new school, right? I believe in a password manager, right? A separate password manager that is an Active Directory. Um, so keep the 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 you that you should think of the backup system as like the first line of defense in a cyber attack, and make sure that that username and password is separate. Make sure it has MFA. Make sure that the backups. Um, and and by the way. <sighs> You know, this this will this will sound like I'm bashing competitors. It's it, it it's not, but you know, a Windows-based backup system, if it's on Windows, some of the backup products store the administrative, like the username, password database, um, inside a database that is it uses the the machine. I believe it's called the machine code. Um, or the machine key. I'm, I'm not a strong Windows guy, but it's the machine key that is universal to Windows. And it's not that hard to hack and get that machine key. And then that means it's easy to get the administrative password. So I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Windows-based, um, you know, backup systems for that reason. But if it, if it is a Windows-based system, find out if there's a way to make sure that isn't the case that your, your, your username and passwords are not easily hacked. Uh, I already talked about MFA. The other thing is that the backups, the, the actual backup data should be stored in such a way that it's not visible as a file on the backup server. Now that, and that is not immediately obvious to most people. So most people, they, you know, a Windows box or a Linux box, they put in their backup software. They're gonna use, they're gonna use disk for their backup system. They have a backup system called, they have a file system called slash backups, right? Or D, you know, E colon slash, you know, backslash backups. And that's where their backups go in their files. Well, when their files are easily findable, they're easily deletable, they're easily corruptible. Um, uh, so don't do that. There are other ways. There are purpose. But if you're going to do on-prem stuff, then uh, have backups stored in a way that they're not visible as files. It just makes them so much easier to hack. Um, I'd say that's sort of the 
um, you know, and then, and then I, I would just, you know, on the end, I would say, if that kind of stuff concerns you, consider a service, right? Uh, it, you know, consider the fact that no one wants to do this, <laughs> right? right? Um, you know, you hire a plumber. That's another job that, that nobody wants to do, right? You, and so you get a plumber because he's making buku bucks doing the job that nobody wants to do, right? Well, do this for backups, right? Um, let the, let your you know IT people do the the stuff they think is sexier, whatever that is. But give this super special, super important uh, job to a service that can that can handle all these things for you and make sure they're already being done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Like, why why uh, make your last line of defense like something that you're um, you know taking on yourself if you don't have the built-in expertise and and you know the years of experience to to do that? And also, you know, it's not just a matter of backups; it's also the recovery scenario. You know, when I had my own company, we used you know cloud-based backups. We did. Uh, um, you know, followed best practices uh, such as they were at the time, but it was all a home-based solution. And I think in the worst case scenario, we probably weren't, we could technically recover things, but it wasn't exactly a one-click deploy, redeploy scenario. Right. So, you know, our companies that are, you know, more sophisticated than say my, you know, prior company from a, you know, recovery standpoint, what, what are they doing from to to manage recoveries? And is that something that like, Companies are typically like testing, doing ongoing testing to understand like what is our ability to recover in the case of a disaster. Well, um, the good ones do, <laughs> um, the smart ones do, right? Uh, you know, we we say it all the time that you know a backup isn't really a backup until you've tested its recovery. And what what I think makes that easy. Um, is if you have something that can help automate that, right? Um, I remember, gosh, it's like 15 years now, but when Veeam first came out with, I think they called it Sure Backup. This was this idea that they would, you could define a recovery group, you could mount that recovery group, you could basically do some testing against it, and you could automate that, right? Um, I remember thinking, in fact, I remember blogging about it, that that like this is the greatest feature in the history of backup, automated testing. How amazing is that? You move forward to today, it's become more common. Um, and so the, the key is, uh, you know, with, with Druva, for example, um, you, you know, it, it's easy to test a, a single file or a database restore. That's pretty easy. You can even automate it through the use of APIs and things like that. Um, the What's more complicated for many environments is to do a full disaster recovery. So what we're able to do is you can define a recovery group. You can define um, you know things like how big of a VM you want to use for each of the VMs. There's a default, of course, that are given for you. Um, and then you but you can customize it. You can specify things like boot order and scripts that are run before and after, all that kind of stuff. You define that once, and then you should be able to test it very easily. I know in Druva, basically, you can test a disaster recovery with liter literally the press of a button, right? Um, and it can do all of the stuff that it needs to do, uh, essentially without failover. That's what a test is, right? Um, and then... Um, and then there is a full there is a full uh, DR you know basically the full DR is to to, to fail over. Um, you should be able to test that, right? And you should be able to test it. It should be it should be easy. Um, again, going back to 100 years ago when I was at the bank, a DR test meant we recovered a handful of systems uh, in the data center. You know, we had hundreds of servers. We would recover like three or four of them. Uh, and it and it was a it was it was all hands on deck for an entire weekend, and all we could say was that we recovered these three or four servers, and then we just rotate the servers, and we did it every six months, and it was a huge pain in the butt weekend process. It took forever, um, and it was terrifying every time. <laughs> every time you did it, it was terrifying, right? 
Nowadays, with modern technology, you should be able to literally just click something or run a, you know, run an API and that it should automate that recovery and you should be able to test that as often as you would like to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you started to touch on a little bit the, you know, the company that you work for, Druva and the Druva platform mm -hmm. and, you know, how it helps organizations with, you know, as essentially offloading the responsibility of right. backups and recovery. But what is it that's, you know, sets Druva apart perhaps from other, you know, data protection and backup solutions that are on the market? So, you know, if, if you had, if you had asked me, so I joined five years ago, um, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, so you're familiar with uh, Gretzky's, Gretzky's uh, comment about skating where the puck is going. Yes, I'm Canadian, that, right? so uh, oh, all you Canadians are born with that knowledge. <laughs> okay. So for, for like five years, we were skating where the puck is going. We were all by ourselves over in the corner of the rink. And that was this idea of being a SaaS-based data protection vendor, okay? Um, and I had to explain to people, right, what I don't understand, like, you know, where are my backups? What, what, what is a SaaS backup provider? And I had to explain um, that, you know, it's like, well, you, you know what 365 is, you know what Salesforce is? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, well, it's like that, but backups, right? Where all the infrastructure just magically just happens, right? You don't have to manage any of it. You don't have to secure it. Um, that's becoming less or becoming more common. And so um, what we're having to do is explain the differentiation. Um, and the, the biggest difference, be, be, because all of our competitors that are in the, the, the more traditional, the other two categories, they're all trying to get into the SaaS space. They're all, they're, well, they are in the SaaS space. Just the question is how much, you know, how, how much business they're doing. Um, what all of them, save one, um, we have one competitor that actually has built a SaaS platform like we have. All of the rest of them, what they did was they took their on-prem solution and they lifted and shifted it into the cloud, right? They didn't refactor. They didn't redesign. They just literally, they're running a VM in the cloud, um, which has significant performance, growth, capacity, security, limitations, uh, even though it's being run as a SaaS offering. So the big thing I think with with ours, um, one is from a cybersecurity perspective, the data stored in a, in a you know completely different area than the metadata. The data is, uh, you know, if, if you're familiar with the concept of deduplication, right, all of, all of the data is sliced up into really tiny chunks each one of those chunks becomes an object in uh, S3. We happen to use AWS as our uh, infrastructure provider. And so even if a, um, uh, a customer, a, 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 I'm sorry, a hacker, a, a, a threat actor was able to access your S3 data, which of course it's set up you know, automatically so that that's not possible. But even if they did, what they would get is all these tiny little slivers of encrypted stuff without any knowledge of how to put it all back together and, and decrypt it, right? Um, what our competitors tend to do is they still tend to think of S3 as a place to put a big blob, right? Like I do a, I do a full backup and that's one object and I put it in S3. That has significant uh, performance ramifications. Right, um, and um, and the and so what a lot of them do is they then use block storage for the for the recent you know restores that actually need to be fast. Well, that has significant cost ramifications, right? It's again, it's because they were all they were all designed as boxes, right? They were all designed as boxes with disk with block disk, and so that that still tends to be the way they're behaving in the cloud, and so. Um, what, what we would say is we're the ones that have been doing it for, for the way that it should be done for over 10 years. Um, we're the largest, we're the only SaaS, we are the only SaaS only company, right? Um, that does this. There are a lot of people that are experimenting with it as their new business line. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so give us a shot basically. Pardon the interruption, but it's me, Sean, the host. 
talking to you directly. I hope you're enjoying the episode. And if so, please subscribe and leave a positive rating and review. You can also join the Partial Redacted community at skyflow.com community to make show suggestions, interact with me, other listeners, and privacy experts and enthusiasts. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I think there's a few things that I want to kind of circle back to in there. It sounds like sure. that, you know, you, at the beginning there, you had the, essentially the category creation problem of, you know, you were the first and and sounds like still only true like SaaS backup and recovery system that exists. So then you had to essentially educate the market on why that makes right. sense versus whatever right. they're doing today. Um, right. So... You know, I guess it's a little bit like, uh, you know, what happened with, I think, like authentication as well. Uh, a little bit different, but where essentially everyone was rolling their own authentication and Auth0 right. and these other services came along and they're like, okay, well, you shouldn't do that. And now, now in a lot of ways, it's like people, it, you'd be crazy to run your own, to write your own Auth uh, from yeah. scratch. It just doesn't make sense. But going back to the deployment model, so you talked about these S3 buckets and mm-hmm. you're essentially putting small fragments of the backups uh, and, and essentially you need to put those pieces back together. Now, where do those S3 buckets live? Is that deployed within like a customer's own uh, AWS account? No. Or is that something that you're hosting and managing on their behalf? Yes. So a Druva customer, uh, the only bill they get is from us, right? So we, uh, depending on what we back up, we charge them different based on different ways. So like if we're backing up Microsoft 365, we're mm-hmm. billing them per seat because that's the way 365, that's the way you pay for 365. So that's why you're gonna pay for backups, right? So for an extra few dollars per seat, we'll back up your 365 environment. Same thing with Salesforce, same thing with laptops. If it's a data center, we we globally deduplicate all the data and we store that in our S3 account and then bill you for the deduplicated result, right? Um, So no, you're not, it's not going into your account. Uh, for both security and cost reasons, it goes into our account. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, from a recovery perspective, it goes directly back to wherever you need it to go. Mm-hmm. And then can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe how, maybe you have some examples of how organizations have successfully used like Druva to recover from, you know, where they face disasters. I don't know if you have, you know, stories that you can you can share there or not. Yeah, we do. Um, the um, at this point, uh, so at this point, we are re- we are doing two to three ransomware recoveries a month, hmm. right? Um, for reasons that are probably relatively obvious, I can't just throw out names of companies, <laughs> but but uh, we have a handful that that sometimes will go on record. Um, but we have a number of very large companies, some of which are household names. Um, uh, I, I should have looked up a few for you, but mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the darn it, one of the um, one of the uh, pharmaceutical companies that was big in uh, fighting um, COVID uh, is our mm-hmm. customers, and it's okay. going to—it's killing me that their name is not popping up to me uh, right now. But the. Like I said, we, we're doing um, you know a couple of ransomware recoveries a month, where um, basically what we what we typically do is we're we're spinning this up in the cloud automatically, then uh, helping them make sure that that recovered result is ransomware free. <clears throat> uh, we have a something called advanced ransomware recovery, which is specifically for file system based systems. The problem with a file system-based uh, ransomware recovery is that the ransomware may be in your environment for a while before it gets noticed, and it may be encrypting data over time without being noticed. And so then the question is, if if the uh, so the, the the average dwell time, I think the mean dwell time of a ransomware attack uh, uh, is like uh, sixty days. Um, you know, the, the time between the initial infection and being discovered is actually 60 mm. days. So mm. during that 60 days, they're often encrypting data. So how do you recover a file system like that if it's been being encrypted over 60 days? With traditional uh, models, it's a mess. With ours, it's literally a couple of button presses. 
you just specify what's the start and what's the beginning, right? We can help you figure out when it started. And we say, so between January 1st and January 15th, um, give me the last best, you know, the, the, the last unencrypted copy of every file, right? And we just do that automatically. But um, yeah, there have been that, you know, I told a story about the one earlier where it wasn't a recovery, but it was a defense against a, a ransomware attack, which was they had somebody that gained administrative control because of due to stolen credentials. Then they were able to uh, go around the MFA and um, and they had they were then basically deleting backups. But because of a feature that we had already enabled, we were able to go in and basically essentially undelete those backups. Right. Um, the um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a uh, I, I should have brought one. I should have brought one, but I don't I'm more on the I'm more on the um, on a different side of the business. But I, I should have a good story for you. And I don't I apologize. Uh, no worries. I imagine it's a little bit of a sensitive thing too for customers of of you know your back, of Druva, where you know if it's successful, that's great. But they don't necessarily want to brag about that they were you know under attack by like some sort of ransomware hackers or something like that. Yeah, it's real. It's really hard. Um, you know, I, I have you know my own podcast, and I've had one person, one company that came on, not a Druva customer. They had one one customer that would that, or one company that came on that uh, talked about their ransomware uh, attack and their you know their uh, you know their experience and, and the thing is what what you can hear from that episode as well as what we're hearing from our customers that we're again doing a couple of times a month now is that the actual recovery is the easy part the actual restoring the data right it, is that's easy. What's not easy is, you know, figuring out what you need to restore, uh, figuring out what you need to wipe, right? Basically figuring out, you know, because that's the, the difference between a cyber recovery and a, and a disaster recovery. A disaster, it's like, okay, you know, drain the, drain the floors, right? Wipe the walls, right? You know, cut out the, cut out the, the bottom eight inches of drywall, um, and, and, and it's really easy. It's like, oh, the, all the servers that are, you know, three feet or lower, <laughs> you know, those are the dead ones. So you pull them out, you put them in and you replace them. That's easy in comparison to a typical ransomware recovery. The, because the challenge is that the, that the disaster, the, the attack is still ongoing as you're trying to recover. So you're actively trying to stop it. Um, so you, you have to, um, you know, you have to stop the communication with the command and control servers. You have to stop communication, uh, lateral communication between infected servers and non-infected servers. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to do that. It's easy to, uh, the easiest way is to just literally shut everything, shut everything down, like literally power off all the servers, but not everybody's prepared to do that, right? From a business perspective. Um, the, um, but believe it or not, that's actually, <laughs> people are like, well, well, we don't know how bad it is, right? We don't know how bad, uh, uh, I mean, I know it'd be easy, you know, easy for me and you, you know, sitting here Monday morning quarterbacking, well, shutting down the service is the easy way. Why don't you just do that? Well, they're, they're thinking and hoping that the infection is only one or two servers. And so shutting down 500 servers you know, doesn't make sense to them to figuring out to to figure out how bad things are. Um, so it, it that that's the complicated part, right? And also the logistics of figuring out who can do what. So what what do I mean by that, right? So it's three a.m. on a weekend, and you're one poor slob who got stuck in the knock, right? It's 3 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday night on the, you know, on Christmas weekend. Because by the way, that's when they attack, right? You know, if you, if you don't know, there's definitely a trend that they go after holidays and three-day weekends and things like that. Um, the, what is that person, what's his uh, or her game plan? What's their uh, rules of engagement? 
What are they allowed to do immediately to stop the bleeding? And who are they allowed to call at three o'clock in the morning when this is going on, right? That stuff so many times is not, uh, is not thought of uh, in advance. So that's the, that, that, those are the things that we've learned from the number of recoveries that we've done. So that, you know, that complexity around sort of understanding you know, the size of the attack, what's the best way to sort of like handle it and recover from it. Is that something that Druva like helps with or are there other like tools and best practices people need to follow? Yes, we do help with that. Um, there are, and, and, and yet basically the answer is yes and to both cases, right? So we are more than happy to help you develop that cyber recovery plan. We are more than happy to help you as a customer that didn't have a cybersecurity plan. That, that's the more common thing is, oh no, we got a ransomware attack and we didn't plan for this. What are we going to do? And then we can advise you to, to go through it. Uh, I would say one of the best practices is, uh, you know, and, and by the way, w when I say it, you'll think I mean something else. So I'll, <laughs> I'll explain. So, con, you know, contract with some cybersecurity insurance with a, with a provider, right? This isn't about having somebody else pay the ransom. This is about uh, having a, a contract that says, in the event that I get hit with ransomware, you have contracts with people that can help me out. That was um, in the, the story from my podcast. So it's Spectralogic, by the way, it's a, a large tape backup company. Um, they, they're the ones that got hit by the ransomware. And they felt that this was invaluable. They, literally, they, they, um, they contracted the, the, the cybersecurity insurance the month before the attack. <laughs> And then they said the best thing they got out of their money was having uh, as part of that contract a cybersecurity expert who's an expert in responding to ransomware attacks on their side, working with them 24-7 uh, to work through the, you know, to work through the, um, the stuff. I would say that would be the biggest one is to get an actual cybersecurity specialist uh, and I'd say probably the best way to do that is to is to have insurance. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, what what did you think? You know, you've been in the space for a long time. You've seen a lot of transformation from a technology perspective, probably best practices perspective as well. What do you think the future of the space looks like? So I think you know, like a lot of people, um, I think that uh, more and more companies are uh, migrating to the cloud. Right, uh, not not just backups, but they're but they're migrating a lot. Not everybody's migrating, and some people are you know repatriating. Right, uh, they they have this they have this this fantasy that the cloud will be cheaper. It could be cheaper if you do it right. Um, you know the the way Druva has architected their product is architected with you know three things in mind: security, performance, and cost. And every time we look at adding a feature or changing a part of the architecture, we have to say, how will this affect our cost? Uh, and how will this affect our security? How will this affect performance? Um, the, um, but you, you have to take cost <laughs> into account, right? So you can, um, you know, uh, do really well in the cloud. But if, for example, one, one of the things that a lot of people don't think about when they're, when they're used to VMware, um, VMware, you pay for the license, you pay for the box, and you have a bunch of VMs that think they're all five terabyte VMs. They're not, right? They're, um, they're pre-provisioned, right? And um, using, using thin provisioning technologies. Then you move into you move each one of those VMs and they become a an AWS VM. In the AWS world, you pay for what you provisioned, right? Um, and so it's just my point is that a lot of people are moving into the cloud. Some of them save money, some of them don't. Um, what I do see is I do see fewer and fewer of these. What still dominates the market, which is the on-prem backup systems, right? To me, at this point, that is a great design for 20 years ago, right? 
Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of those companies, they, um, so I, I think that, I think that more companies like Druva will come into play, right? Um, I don't see the, I don't see the, um, these on-prem companies. I don't see them successfully migrating to a SaaS provider. I don't know any company anywhere that's done that other than they shut off the old and they do the new, right? They, because you can't be both. You, you, because it, it just doesn't, from a business perspective, it doesn't work when you have two completely almost, well, not almost, competing business lines, right? You're going to cannibalize from one each other. You're going to have, if you do it right, you're going to have two different, two completely different code trees. Um, so what I see, I don't see those being long, long-term successful. What I do see happening is we'll get more competitors. I think more and more vendors will be SaaS-based. The more cloudy you are, the more doing backups in the cloud makes sense. So I see more and more cloud backup vendors, um, you know, over over the time. The challenge that we have right now as we move into the future is that there are a ton of SaaS providers, right? Not not backup, just SaaS, right? Just think about the number of SaaS products, you know you and I interact with on a daily basis. I mean, we're using one right now to do the recording of this, right? Not that long ago, we'd have to be sitting in the same room with, you know, with some recording devices, right? Um, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies like this, and many of them produce data that should be backed up. And so what you're starting to see is a proliferation of companies that just do one thing, <clears throat> right? We just do Salesforce backup. We just do 365 backup. We just do uh, GitHub backup. There are like hundreds of these companies that just do one or two or three products. Um, that proliferation is going to continue for a while. Um, but, you know... It, it, it concerns me because now now you're adding a lot more complexity to your backup system because if you're using both Salesforce and GitHub and something else that you can only back and you're using three different backup products to back up three different SaaS providers, yeah, that's just fraught with problems, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a like classic fragmentation problem. That, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and the the SaaS, the world of SaaS, which is amazing. Right, mm -hmm. I love the world of SaaS. Uh, it it creates this problem. So so our job as as IT practitioners, as as we look at these new vendors, these new SaaS vendors, um, we need to look at each of them and see if they create data that they're storing that we don't want to lose. And then the question is, how is this data being backed up? Right, because 99.9% .9 of the time, the answer is it isn't. That's uh, that's the other, like if you go back to the very beginning of the podcast when you said what's the number one mistake people make besides mm -hmm. the cybersecurity thing, is it's people that use SaaS providers and think that those SaaS providers are backing up their data. They're not, mm -hmm. right? Unless it's in your contract. Um, and so things like Microsoft 365, Salesforce, G Suite, all of these things, um, you get a major ransomware attack, you do something stupid, like there was a company uh, right up your way. There was a company in the East Bay that had their entire code tree, their entire IP in Google Workspace. And then a well-meaning sysadmin deleted their account. He thought he was <laughs> deleting, he thought he was deleting the development account, but mm -hmm. he deleted the main account and boom, their company was gone. That's a bad right? day for that guy. <laughs> that is a bad day. Yeah, um, and and they were a true cloud company where they did. It's not they didn't have a cache. Like everything was up <laughs> in Google Drive. Um, that that's the other big mistake is that people use these SaaS providers and think that they're they're backing up the data, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have things like it's not a SaaS provider. Well, I guess so. Rackspace, you're familiar with the outage, the Rackspace outage? 
Uh, sounds yeah, sounds familiar. But uh, maybe so the, there was, so December second of last mm -hmm. year, Rackspace had they had a hosted exchange service, right? Um, it's it's SaaS ish because you're still administering Exchange, but um, it's um, they had a, a ransomware attack. It took down their environment, and it's never coming back up. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So yeah. they moved they moved their customers over to 365, mm -hmm. and uh, they actually did um, actually have backups as part of their uh, contract, but. It doesn't look like, based on what we're seeing and the behavior and what's happened since then, they didn't design the recovery <laughs> to, and specifically the recovery that they would have to do, that they're doing now, which is um, um, they're having to, they had to restore, disinfect all of the exchange servers, then create PS, PST files for every single user. And it's taking, it's gonna be months right to, oh, wow. to get all that data back right what why is wh what does that have to do with my point my point is far too many companies make the assumption that the SaaS vendor uh, has a backup system or has one that's been tested so don't make that assumption right um mm -hmm. I, I i another prediction i will make is that a lot of companies will lose a lot of data because they make these assumptions yeah yeah i mean i think those those sound like very sound predictions you know go back to the the this duality of uh, you know offering essentially the the on-prem box solution with trying to offer a cloud solution I think there's clear philosophical divide between those worlds and you kind of have to you got to choose a path um, right it doesn't make sense to in a long-term sort of business go to market and product strategy to do both so I think that's a good place to to leave it uh, but is there anything else you want to share or, or point uh, the listeners to? Well, uh, so if there is, so my most recent book, uh, so I've written four books, <clears throat> written four books with O'Reilly, and uh, the latest is Modern Data Protection. It was in 2021. Uh, you can actually get a free ebook copy of that by going to druva.com slash ebook. And that, um, you know, it's about 300 pages, a nice, a nice evening read. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it gives you advice across pretty much the entire uh, spectrum of data protection and your various choices and whatnot. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely include that in the show notes for the episode. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. I thought this was, uh, you know, really interesting and educational for me. You know, I think backups, recoveries, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's just like one of those things that everybody needs, but something that's overlooked or, you know, taken for granted. However, like a lot of topics, there's just a lot to it when you start to dig in and if you want to do it right. So thanks for sharing all your experience with this. Happy to do so.